Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogue. It's my great pleasure to welcome a friend, a member of our shul, Professor Shlomo Engelson. Shlomo is the chairman of the Department of Computer Sciences at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He is an author of many, many scientific papers. Uh, even I remember when he made it into the newspaper for some of his research as well in terms of sports analytics. But most recently, he has been doing some fascinating research in terms of using text to identify their authors, gender, age, and things of that nature. And I really want to start with that, but continue in a lot, a lot of different ways as well. So Shlomo, thank you so much for joining me today. So let me, let me you ask you a simple thing. If I write a letter and I send you the letter and you put it through your, your computer programs, what can you normally tell from it? Well, um, first, first of all, if I don't know anything about who might have, who might have written it, um, I could take it and we could identify with reasonable accuracy, whether it was written by a man or a woman, um, a, approximately how old you are, um, something about your educational background as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of error in it, but it, but it works quite well. And why would I need that? Well, um, think about the case of, you know, perhaps uh, you might, in, a, in case of a kidnapping, you might have a ransom note. You might have several suspects and you might want to figure out, uh, you know, who, uh, who, who, uh, who was likely to have written the ransom note. Um, or to give you another case, and this is this is an actual case uh, that was solved by a, a linguist colleague of mine in, in Britain. Uh, there was a couple who got married, and right after they got married, they went to take a round-the-world tour. Sometime when they were supposed to be around India, several months into their, into their tour, some of the wife's family members noticed that her text's home seemed not to be quite like her. Um, my friend, they, they eventually called in the cops. Uh, and on some analysis, they found that it was that the husband was actually writing the text putatively from the wife. In the end, it was discovered that he had actually murdered her right before they left England and had been pretending to be her the whole time. I think she was an heiress or, uh, or, or something like that. And they were able to, through linguistic analysis, to figure out uh, that he had done this. Well, could you put um, Shakespeare's plays through through the program and determine whether or not it was really Shakespeare who was the author? Well, the only way to determine whether it was really Shakespeare as the author is to have other texts that we know were actually by Shakespeare. So we have to compare texts, question texts, as we call them, to known texts. Um, we have, and in fact, you know, some of my earliest work in this, you know, some 20 years ago, uh, was looking at Shakespeare uh, and and questions like that. And there are plays with disputed authorship, plays that might have been written by Shakespeare and other people uh, that we can contribute to the scholarship on, on in that regard. So is this something you did as pure science or is it something about it? Or are you an amateur cop or detective along the way and just got really interested? <laughs> Well, it's, it started out really as, as very pure science. Um, a colleague of mine, Moshe Capel, a good friend, uh, and I were, were working on text classification algorithms and so forth. And we said, well, what would happen uh, if we tried to distinguish between whether, whether, whether something was written by a man or a woman? What would happen if we tried to figure out what newspaper an article was from? Was it from the New York Times or the New York Post? Um, and we discovered that our methods could work fairly well. 
along the way, we also discover that we have to be very careful how we do these experiments, uh, because there's a lot of subtleties uh, and tricks in terms of how word usage may indicate authorship or it may indicate other things as well. And you just dropped the name Moshe Capel like it's uh, not a name that we know from the news. Uh, Moshe Capel yes. is not only a, a colleague of yours and a researcher you're in your area, he's also very much in the news in terms of judicial reform in Israel, having been one of the two key personalities probably in the news on a regular basis today. So just putting it out there, it's fascinating the different lives people have. <laughs> um, he's a real renaissance. No, it's well, so are you, but that's good. But let me just move on from there for a minute. In terms of this kind of research that you do, is is are you the uh, is are there a lot of people doing it? Is something that primarily you do, Moshe Capel does, a few others? Well, there's been sort of a small group of people um, you know, all over the world working on this kind of research for the net for the last 20 years or so, but but in the last three to four years, uh, it's gained much more interest as the importance of it for many important applications, such as, you know, I mentioned, you know, in terms of criminal investigations, in terms of counterterrorism, intelligence operations, um, you know, if intelligence operators come across a trove of documents in, I don't know, the hills of Afghanistan, you want to be able to find out as much as you can about these documents. And authorship analysis is one of those key tools that can be used. Now, um, I, I you know, know cybersecurity as well is, is in areas. So I don't know if, if you could even answer this, if you could answer this. So is this the kind of thing where uh, the various security agencies, whether it's the CIA, FBI, NSA, are you in touch with them? Are they using your research? That's something that I wouldn't be able to tell you. What I can tell you is that the funding arm of the intelligence community in the U.S., it's called IARPA, uh, is funding us on a project right now to do exactly this, to do authorship attribution. Uh, this is, it's a scientific project, but I imagine the science is going to be used in various ways. And how does it work in terms of languages? Does it work with different languages the same way, or every language has to be a whole new set of data that's that's input for, for the analysis purpose? Well, that's a great question. Um, there, you can kind of think of it as sort of two levels. There's a level which is language specific. So for example, one of the features that we would use in English to determine authorship are prepositions. Different people use different prepositions with different frequencies on average. Um, but in a language that doesn't have prepositions, you have to look for the equivalent kinds of features in those languages. So for example, in Hebrew, you're looking for prefixes and suffixes, uh, which are giving you similar sorts of information. And then after you have that level of linguistic analysis, then you can do the statistical analysis, which talks about authorship, about style, uh, about you know various demographics and so forth. Now, does this tie in at all with the research taking place now in artificial intelligence, or it's a totally a somewhat different field? Um, well, it's it's sort of like it's a subfield of artificial intelligence writ broadly. The you know what we're seeing from artificial intelligence recently. Um, you know, our enormous developments in one particular area of artificial intelligence, uh, the, the field of neural networks, where these techniques have developed to a point where they have tremendous power to generate and to analyze text and images in ways that, uh, you know, are, are truly astounding. And people working in the field have been, in fact, um, quite literally amazed uh, over the last few years at what they're able, what these techniques are actually able to do. Now, these Methods of large, what are called deep neural networks, 
can be applied to these problems as well. And there are researchers who are, do, who are doing this as well. My particular approach, which starts out from a linguistic and statistical analysis, we're looking at integrating these methods uh, to see what can be done by, by putting them together and perhaps getting methods with, with even greater power. Now, I'm sure as a computer scientist, you're following the whole question of artificial intelligence. Just yesterday in the news, yesterday, the day before, the uh, the person behind ChatGPT actually uh, testified before Congress how dangerous the science that he's developing can be. Uh, it, do you share those same kind of concerns? I, I do share some of those concerns. Um, I think that uh, one thing is, is that the large players in this space, um, they have incentives to play up certain of the dangers and also and to play down others of the dangers for business purposes. So if they can get the government, for example, to regulate AI in the ways that they want it regulated, that helps them to put up uh, um, barriers to entry uh, for other uh, potential companies uh, to get into the business. So they have incentives to play up what, what what's called existential risk. AI is going to kill us all because then they can get regulations put in place that they will be able to do business, but other companies will not be able to get into the business. The more immediate risks, uh, and in fact, the much more likely risks uh, of AI right now of these techniques are, uh, first of all, uh, if we talk about you know changes in the labor force, up until up, up until now, um, what are called knowledge workers—people that you know, people that write, you know, people in people in um, in in marketing, in law, in many of the professions—have uh, been relatively safe from automation. However, AI, while it's not going to automate away these professions, it's going to automate a lot of the routine work in these professions. So, a lot of the work that, for example, paralegals do uh, in a law firm. Uh, can now or very soon will be able to be done by AI, uh, much more cheaply and much more efficiently. That's going to change the nature of work in these professions. That's going to be a huge upheaval. And but the fear that people keep on referring back to of hell from the 2001: A Space Odyssey taking over and everything else of that nature is that something real at this point? Is it something that you think it, people should really be raising the flags of danger? Well, I hesitate to say what people should be afraid of. I'm not at all concerned. <laughs> and as a, yeah, no, go ahead, please. Not until we have some some fundamental new advances. I, I don't think we're we're going to be there yet. What we should be afraid of, in my view, now I'm going I'm going to give you a should, is we should be afraid of bad actors using the current techniques and you know even more powerful techniques in in a few months or the next year uh, to do nefarious things. But then we've been concerned about, and that's been happening even before AI, just the thought of social media and its impact with the people who have created situations where uh, it is harmful to others. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But but consider the following. Uh, right now, Russia uh, has you know huge numbers of people working on social media to find ways to create misinformation and to create and disseminate misinformation. And they have to find, they have to hire these people, they have to pay these people. Um, with AI, they can automate it. Once they get something that works, they can duplicate it a million times and just let it loose. And in fact, any Tom, Dick, and Harry can do the same thing. And so that's the immediate danger, that, that kind of use of AI. Now, that's, that's right. Given the, the advances of technology, 
Is computer science something that people are going into today? Is it is do you find that in your department you have more students than ever before? Well, I, I will tell you that um, our student body is going to grow by at least 50% this fall from last fall, uh, possibly even more. So it's an enormous, enormous increase in interest. And that interest, I think, is is, is well justified. Um, computer science uh, is not going away anytime soon. It's only growing. Uh, the nature of the profession um, is transforming because what we have developed is going to change the way that software engineers do their jobs, just like all knowledge workers. Uh, and we're working in the universities to keep up with these advances that we ourselves are helping to catalyze. And it's interesting though, because on the one hand, you're saying that it's growing in the university. And yet what I hear, and this is just anecdotal, is that the people are opting out of universities and just getting the necessary technical knowledge and going to work for computer science companies and others without the degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we see both. We see we we see both. And in fact, the 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 growth of the profession is such um, that's that there's room for for growth in both. But I would tell anybody looking to say go to a you know six week or a three month boot camp, uh, coding camp. Uh, to get into the profession, um, you can start that way. But if you learn more broadly the theoretical fundamentals, which you would get through a degree program, um, you will be more capable of growing with the profession. And that's true for at least most people. But is the profession, the profession you entered into 20, 30 years ago, is very different than the profession oh. today. Uh, oh. Out of curiosity, what was your dissertation? My dissertation was on um, machine learning for mobile robots. So robots wandering around an environment, trying to build an, an internal cognitive map of the environment. And it's very interesting. In, the, in those days, in the, the early 90s, um, people were th trying to think in, in, in robotics research of what would the killer app for a robot be? And one of the ideas that people were batting around and trying to figure out how it would make practical was a robot vacuum cleaner. This was <laughs> future. This was science fiction back then. Now you can go to Costco and buy one. And so from where you started in the profession and today, the profession has changed drastically. Where I started, my first um, computer course was with punch cards. And I remember dropping a stack of them and having to reorder them. Mm -hmm. And most people watching this have no idea what I'm talking about, but every line of code was a separate card and they had to be put in order and then they had to be put into a machine and you would come back a day later and get your printout if you were patient. Uh, and if you weren't patient to make a difference, it still was a day later for the printout. So things have changed so drastically. And where you started, is there any way of imagining where it, the field will be in 10 years, 20 years? It's very, very difficult to predict what the field will be, you know, especially, I mean, you know, we were talking about AI a minute ago. AI is going to have really unpredictable effects. Anytime that there's a development of a fundamentally new technology um, that can become widespread. I mean, ChatGPT, uh, probably the, you know, the, the most popular of the AI applications right now, uh, it became the, you know, the most widely spread application in the world in a matter of weeks much faster than anything else. So the spread is enormous. Um, think about the iPhone. Before the iPhone was released, could anybody have imagined how they would have changed our daily lives? No, I think there's no way to, to, to see how AI is going to change our lives, um, you know, let alone the profession of computer science, let alone the teaching and the profession of English literature and composition. It changes 
an enormous amount. Um, and we can't really predict. All we can do is try to both keep up and get a little bit ahead of the curve, try to predict a few months or a year into the future, um, and also try to shape that future. And as an Orthodox Jew who's, who has a very significant role in a university, does that have any impact? When people see you walking around with a yarmulke today, do they say, well, he's Jewish, obviously he's smart, or he's Jewish, and what's he doing here? Does it have any impact? <laughs> um, well, not, not that I've particularly noticed. Um, you know, what I, I mean, you know, what I hope that I do and what I try to do is I try to be a kid of Shashem. And what I hope is, is that, you know, by, you know, trying to be, you know, the best person and the best Jew that I can be, that, you know, I provide a good image of, of what a Jew is and what a Jew can be. But, you know, apart from that, you know, I, I, I haven't really seen anything particular. I mean, there are a lot of Jews in my profession, so. There are a lot. And is, is the growing anti-Semitism in campuses something that impacts computer science, or is that more in the areas of humanities and just people who like hanging out on uh, in campuses and campus life? I, I think that there's an impact. Yeah, I don't think that it, that it matters as much, you know, sort of what field you're in. Certainly in some areas, um, you know, the questions of ideology are much more at the fore. Um, so those issues will, will come up more in the classroom and so forth. They won't come up in the classroom in computer science. Um, and very fortunately at Illinois Tech, you know, we haven't had uh, any real problems with anti-Semitism there. Um, so it depends a lot also on what campus you're on, um, sort of what the campus culture is and what the campus culture allows. Um, but, you know, certainly I hear a lot from, from many of my colleagues about problems. Yeah, no, there was just the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the graduation, uh, speech that was done uh, that was given at one of the CUNY campuses. Yeah. It was a real, at the law school, which was a real problem. And it, now you've also done, you've worked in Israel, you've worked here in the United States. Is there, is there a difference between university life in Israel and university life in the States? Very much so. Um, you know, there, I, 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 it was it was a bit of a culture shock for me coming to teach an American university after having taught in Israel for for, for many years. Um, I mean, one of the things is that students, university students in Israel, they're going to university after having done the army. Um, many of them are married. Many of them have families. Many of them have jobs. Um, so, on the one hand. You know, they're more distracted from the university studies. On the other hand, they're much more serious and focused about the university studies. So there's this kind of, you know, dual, they don't have very much time for their studies, but when they're working on their studies, they're a bit more focused uh, in a way. Um, I did find, you know, just, just as a personal thing, I found that it was difficult for me teaching because I couldn't throw in uh, little, you know, Talmudic quotes or things into my lectures because, you know, all, you know, all of our students, they, they would not understand anything anymore. Uh -huh. And, and when you, when you came back, is there also a, a different, when, when you taught in Israel, you were teaching in Hebrew, you teach in English. I, I taught in Hebrew. In fact, you know, one of the very first sentences that I said when I started teaching there is, you know, I'll teach you computers, you teach me Hebrew. And I was terrified because I thought these tough Israeli students, but they were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful. Is there truth to uh, the, the stories about Startup Nation and attitudes that when it comes to Israeli students, they're more willing to challenge professors and American students are more passive? 
Oh, yes. One of, one of the big differences that I found is, is that uh, in Israel, it was very easy for me to get classroom discussion started. Uh, getting classroom discussion stopped was very difficult. <laughs> Here, it was exactly the opposite. But yeah, no, they're, they're, they're definitely willing to challenge, uh, but they're also willing to listen. They want to learn. And and working today, I, I assume it's global in your field that uh, everyone, because you can be working in Chicago or you can be working in Hong Kong, but since everything is internet-based, everything is is live, everything is real, you have colleagues all over the world doing the, the same kind of things. Or is that, are you working? Yeah, there's a... Yeah, I mean, the, the possibility of remote work, you know, has, has really, you know, burgeoned and made, made things much easier. I mean, international research collaborations have always existed, uh, but it's so much easier today uh, than it was because we, you know, we have we have remote meetings all the time. You know, I work from home and I'm I'm meeting with colleagues on campus. I'm meeting with colleagues in Israel and England and all, all, all over the world. I mean, the, the project that I talked to mentioned before about authorship analysis. Uh, we have a bunch of people in the United States as well as in England, and we're all working together on these projects. Now, in the profession itself, it depends a lot on companies. There are a lot of managers who don't know how to run teams if people are not in the office. And if they don't know how to do that, they insist on people coming into the office, which ultimately is bad for efficiency and productivity. Because when you have people, especially in computer science or other kinds of fields where a lot of the work is individual, Remote work can be a huge advantage if you can learn to manage it. And and in terms of that remote work, so never things didn't shut you down during COVID because if the person doesn't know how to use computers to be able to learn, they really shouldn't be in computer science. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you should be able to, to 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 do that if you if you're in computer science. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was really good. I mean, at Illinois Tech, we've been doing remote learning for a while, for for many many years. So the switch to COVID, while it was a bit of a switch, was not as hard for us as it was for many universities. Now, I know you're not just focused uh, on the authorship analysis. What other fun projects of research, fun, might not be fair to say fun, what other pro research projects oh, have you really done, okay, that is fun and that people would really uh, learn from? Well, let's see. Um, so the one that you mentioned earlier about uh, sports analytics, uh, which uh, anyone who knows me knows that, you know, my knowledge of sports runs approximately from A to B. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we have a data science, uh, a master of data science program uh, that I helped start. Uh, and our data science students all do projects outside, you know, with outside partners. So with various local companies and so forth. I was approached by the um, Illinois Tech basketball coach. And we put together a project to, with some of our students to do basketball analytics for our admittedly um, at that time, you know, lower end division three basketball team. Um, those of you who do know sports will understand what that means. Um, I didn't, but now I do. Um, and we did various sorts of analytics to give the coach better insights into the strengths and weaknesses of various players and how they played both individually and together with other players on the team. Um, and partly of course, you know, of course, a lot is, is due to uh, the coach's work. Uh, but we believe that our analytics contributed a little bit that the following year, uh, the team got to the championship game in division three. So, so that was what baited. They did the pretty well, if I remember. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works. That's right. Did any of the major league baseball teams reach out to your your groups? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. You're still waiting. You know, it's ones you're going to make the money on. Haven't done that yet. So sports analytics, authorship attribution, a little bit of AI here and there. What are the other things that you think are on on your horizon of what you'd like to to look into? Well, on my, I mean, the the, the authorship analytics is only one piece of a much larger uh, kind of a research project, which is you know looking at understanding um, the style of writing and uh, how the ways in which we use language change depending on our purposes, depending on our context, um, depending you know obviously on our our, our individual. Uh, proclivities and so forth. So there is research, um, and I've done a little bit of research on personality typing by by language use. So there are psychological applications. There are applications for diagnosing, um, for diagnosing various uh, you know psychological or neurological conditions. Looking at this sort of in a big picture and trying to develop uh, a theoretical paradigm for talking about you know when you see stylistic differences in language use, what does it mean? What does it say about the author, the reader, um, the context. Have you ever run the Tanakh or at least the Chumash through the analysis? Um, I haven't, but the aforementioned Moshe Kapel has, um, you know, using using our techniques. Um, and I can say a couple of things about what they found. Um, you know, one thing is um, the traditional division of Isaiah of the book of Yeshayahu into two pieces. It's very, very clear if you look at the results. Uh, there's a there's a very you know very clear stylistic difference between the first part and the second part. Uh, if you look at the at the Chumash, uh, you find that um, the machines more or less, with with some differences, do find um, clear stylistic division the distinctions similar to those hypothesized by uh, the um, documentary hypothesis folk, uh, the J P E and D. Uh, as they say. Um, however, I must say, the implication for those divisions and what that means um, is, is not quite so simple uh, because there is no, nobody has a, the th- a theory of authorship which would be able to tell you if you see this kind of difference between two texts, it means that they were definitely written by different authors. If I took the book, you know, to take a favorite example of mine, Moby Dick. If I took it and I ran it through the same sorts of techniques, I would come up with the conclusion that it was potentially written by, you know, anywhere between three and five different authors, one of whom was a storyteller, one of whom was an expert on whale biology, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So you can't really tell from stylistic differences between different parts of a very literary work, you know, written by anybody. what the authorship really is. It's, it's, it, it basically is that people can use different voices and different yeah. styles for different audiences. And so the Chumash could have been, or did use, HaKadosh Baruch who used different voices at different times in uh, in creating the Chumash, just like Sefer Devarim is the voice of Moshe Rabbeinu. So it doesn't mean mm-hmm. multiple authors. It just means multiple yeah, voices. And there, there... Absolutely. And there are a lot of wonderful Talmudic Chachamim who, you know, find, you know, what these things uh, potentially mean. They find a lot of meaning in those differences. And in that same range, when you look at, have, 
just out of curiosity, have you ever looked at the differences between the styles of Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Chumash? Has that ever been done? To look across Tanakh and see what kind of differences are there? Um, not to my knowledge, but I'm, I'm I'm sure there are people who have or would be interested in looking at them. You know, with the with the use of uh, computer technology. One one project actually that I do have on the horizon that I can't say very much about uh, is you know in collaboration with some colleagues in Israel, looking at midrash and comparing midrash to other literary forms to find to see if we can find shared themes uh, and the evolution of these themes uh, from you know from different historical periods. You mean Midrashim versus folk tales and other things that were existent in the ancient world? Possibly. Things like that, yes. <laughs> you know, and 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 also looking at the evolution across different, you know, historical strata because Midrashim come from different times. Fascinating. And and just one last question because our time is really um coming to an end. First of all, in, in terms of this work that you're doing, is there is this something that people can just access if i had a text could i say hey can you run this through or is it something that it's really not, is on a higher level higher level of uh, uh of it's not quite it's not quite that push button yet um uh, if you know any investors who'd like to invest some money into developing a push button version of the system that would be great but uh but right now it requires a, you know a fair bit of uh, expertise and effort Okay. Shlomo, I, I have to thank you for your time. I also have to give a shout out to your wife, Stephanie, who has been very helpful with this series of daytime dialogues of helping come up with ideas of people to speak with. I will note that speaking with you is my idea and not hers, but I am uh, very much thankful for her and even more thankful right now for the time you've given me today. I know there are many things that you have to deal with and that you took this time out of your busy day is very meaningful to us. I thank you. And I also, uh, it was fascinating to, to learn about all of these pieces of, of research that you do. So until um, Shabbos, or maybe earlier, I just want to say goodbye and thank you. See you soon. <laughs> Have a wonderful thank you very day. much. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care.